Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Today, as announced, uh, we begin a four-week series on stewardship, the first full-blown series on stewardship we've done in a long, long time, several years, and uh, we're doing this in the context of lordship, which we've been teaching about the last few weeks, and I uh, am, am excited to talk to you today about uh, some truths that I believe uh, may very well impact, in fact, I'll be so bold to say even change some of our lives. So I've been thinking a lot again about Eden. Um, I talk, teach, write a lot about Eden. I've been kind of back on that on my study intensive, as you'll learn here in a few minutes, uh, as I'll actually read to you some of the things I read. I uh, was involved in the research of some scholars, and the subject kind of kept coming back to Eden. And uh, also, I'm in the process of writing a new book. If you uh, if you uh, follow me on social media, you know I was just blessed to sign another deal with my publisher, and uh, I'm working on a book, so I was doing extensive research around that, and uh, it's kind of based in Eden. It's about the way things are supposed to be. I'm not allowed to announce the title of the book yet, but um, it's the book's fundamentally about the way things are supposed to be. And where do you find out the way things are supposed to be? You find out the way things are supposed to be in Eden. In Eden... Uh, we see people in harmonious relationship with God and each other. We see people working in alignment with their God-given purpose. We see people at peace with the physical environment around them. We see a world where there's no sickness, no death. And, uh, as I'll dig into a little bit today, we see abundant resources. The world began in Eden, as you know, and it will end, or more accurately, begin anew with Eden. And my worldview is, my worldview is, and it shows up a lot in my teaching and writing, that this Edenic past and Edenic future should inform the way that we think about life now, every day. We should be informed by what we see and will see in Eden. Of course, Jesus came to redeem us from the sin that lost Eden and deliver us from the curse that came as a result of sin and to restore us to what God wanted for us in the beginning. And we'll not fully experience this until the age to come, but as I often say, we can taste it now. We can taste it now. The gospel or the good news about Jesus is that he is bringing us back to what we lost. And no believer would deny that we see this in some measure now through Jesus. For instance, we have been restored and have the potential of a harmonious relationship with God. No one would question that. That was lost in Eden, and through Jesus it came back. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, through what Jesus did, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we've been restored to a harmonious relationship with God. But if that is true, why would we not believe that we can have some of these other Edenic realities restored to our lives, at least in some measure as well? Why, don't, why wouldn't we think about that? 
For instance, you continue to read in Romans chapter 5, you see a wonderful passage. Uh, verse 17 says, For if by the trespass of the one man, or if by what Adam did wrong, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Some of us have more faith in Adam's sin than we do in Christ's righteousness. The fact is that Jesus came to bring us back what was lost. And that's not only harmonious relationship with God. We should expect to see these other Edenic realities manifest in our lives now. Again, we're not going to fully see it until the age to come. But we should see it now. Now, it's going to look different. I mean, it looks different. We're not walking around naked in our relationship with God and each other. Yet we have a measure, talking about Eden in the beginning. If you didn't know that part, you missed a really good story. But we should have a measure of it. We, 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 again, it doesn't, it's not completely like it was, but it is like it was. We've, we've had peace. We now have peace with God. And we now have the potential. The New Testament spends a lot of ink on this. We have the potential of having peace with each other. I mean, those are where, where, where do we see that displayed more, most beautifully? We see that displayed in Eden. So why shouldn't we expect some of these other things to be occurring in our lives, including this idea, again, I'm talking about stewardship today, of abundant resources? Why uh, would we accept something less than the ideal that we see that displays to us what it is God wanted for us. And we need to remember that anything less than what was in Eden is a result of the curse, and that we should not be accepting of anything that is a result of the curse. Anything that looks different than what God had for us in Eden is a result of the curse. And we shouldn't be saying, oh, that's great. It's not great. If it's so, I, I, I want to begin this series on stewardship then by exploring the question, should we expect that it's God's desire that we have abundant resources? Now, why am I connecting that to Eden? Was anybody poor in Eden? No, they had abundant resources. And I could go into a long description of what we know about that, but the fact is they had everything they needed and more. And should we live with an expectation that that could be a reality in our lives, that that's something that represents the heart of God for us? And I'll talk about that as a larger discussion of prosperity, which is, you know, we'll get into the nuances of this in a minute, but uh, we should pose the question perhaps this way. Should we believe that God wants to prosper us? And if so, does that include abundant resources. Now, let me begin then or continue by attempting to define or redefine for us what we mean when we say prosperity, or more importantly, what the Bible's referring to when it speaks about prosperity. The word in the New Testament translated prosper means to help on one's way. And the phrase to prosper in the Old Testament has to do with completing a successful venture. Prosperity has to do with the provision that is made as we are on our way to where we're going. I 
would say that prosperity is the abundance that God supplies in every dimension of our lives as we move toward fulfilling our destiny. That to prosper is to have more than we need in every circumstance as we fully become who we were made to be and fully live the life we were made to live. Now, the point isn't or aren't the things we have. The points are, the point is where it is God's taking us. But the things we have become important in all of us, it's going to look different, but to getting to where God is taking us. A beautiful case study in Scripture, of course, is the story of Joseph. Joseph, the uh, what would he have been, the great-grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, a young man with a dream, a destiny, who as he set out towards his dream, ended up uh, experiencing a wide variety of things as he was getting where God was leading him. Uh, you'll remember that one thing that happens is he ends up in as a slave in the household of Potiphar, not a desirable place to be. But we're told in Scripture, and you can look this up, that Joseph prospered while he was a slave in the household of Potiphar, or that he was successful in everything he put his hands to, depending on which translation you read. Now, does that mean that Joseph was rich when he was a slave in the household of Potiphar as it concerns material things, money and things. I think it's, we should be, feel pretty safe to say no. The fact that he prospered while he was in the house of Potiphar didn't mean that he had a lot of money in his bank account. But Scripture said he prospered. And then he uh, becomes imprisoned. And while he was in prison, Scripture tells us that he, what? That he was prosper, that he was successful in prison. Now, does success in prison for Joseph look like success would have looked if he was a, you know, a fantastic uh, business person at that time? No, I'm sure it looked different. The fact that he prospered didn't mean that he had a lot of money when he was in prison, but it meant that God was with him and giving him what he needed to get where he was going. Now, where did he end up going? He ended up becoming vice regent to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. Joseph becomes arguably the second most powerful man in the world, to which I would then ask the same question I asked about the first two things. Do, do I think he had a lot of money in his bank account? And my answer would be probably. He may have had a Rolls Royce gold-spoked chariot for all. Whatever the nicest thing was in the world, I assume that Joseph probably had it at this point. He was prospering, meaning that God was with him, giving him what he needed, and at that time in his life, part of prosperity was that he was blessed with material things. Can you kind of see the nuance here? He prospered all along the way. And so I would say that prosperity isn't about how much money we have in our bank account. It's about having what we need, the provisions we need to get to where God's leading us. And for each of us, this might look different at different places in our lives. It might look different for different people who are living in different places in the world. It might look different for different people throughout history. The point is, aren't the things, but if the things is helping us get to where God's taking us, then the things are a part, a part of what it means to prosper. 
So I would simply say that abundant resources can be a part of God's blessing on our lives. And I will say that having the resources we need to get where God's leading us is always a part of God's blessing on our lives. Now, the amounts and all of that, again, you know, this is going to manifest itself in many different ways. Here's my point. I'm going to make a lot of points today. I'm going to make points, sharpen the points, stab you with the points. We should live, I believe, this is what I'm proposing to you. We should live with an expectation that God wants to bless us with abundance. As it concerns where we're going, where we've been called in our lives with God. And I think many well-meaning Christians are afraid to say this because of the abuses that have come around what some of you would never have heard of, but many of you would have, who come around the so-called prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the idea, and I'm going to be really general here, okay? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to, for some people, this will be the elephant in the room, and I just want to kill the elephant, okay? The prosperity gospel is, again, in very general terms, the idea advanced by some that makes it seem as if the primary purpose of the gospel is health and wealth. That basically, when it's all said and done, becomes the goal of the prosperity gospel. And that if we, for instance, make the proper confession and give enough money that God pretty much is obligated to bless us with more money. And uh, that being financially rich is a, a sign of God's favor. And that being poor is a sign of God's disfavor. That if somebody is sick, it's basically when you really get right down to it, it it's because it's their fault that they didn't have enough faith or that they didn't confess their faith and say the right words so that they could be healed. I've dealt with a lot of people in my life who blame themselves for their sickness because they grew up in a prosperity gospel context in which it was, if you didn't say exactly the right words with a round or out of faith or something wrong with you, that's, well, a scriptural term I would use is hui. Actually, that's not a scriptural term. Some of you thought, that's a Hebrew word I've never heard. The sad thing, though, is that is so often true with heretical teaching. The prosperity gospel is a perversion of the truth, meaning there's the thing that has been abused is truth to where the truth has been turned into just enough error that it kind of messes up the whole thing. It's true that poverty and sickness are a result of the curse. That's unassailable. Was there poverty in the garden? I'll answer the question for you. No. Was there sickness in the garden? No. How did poverty and sickness come? It came as a result of the curse. So we live in a fallen world that ha where a lot of things exist that aren't what God wanted, but because of the decision of Adam and Eve, it's the way things are for now. But... That does not mean that if an individual is poor or sick, that they are cursed. 
The individual is living in a world that is cursed and not yet fully redeemed. In fact, for instance, we see in Scripture some instances of sickness being used to accomplish some greater good than physical health. And as it concerns the poor, we see God's love for the poor, not his disfavor towards the poor, but his love for the poor expressed over and over and over again. And our responsibility to care for the poor expressed over and over and over again. But, and here's a careful nuance, friends, this doesn't mean that God's desire is poverty or sickness. Again, was there, you want to know how things are supposed to be? Was there poverty and sickness in Eden? No. Will there be poverty and sickness in the age to come? No. So is poverty and sickness God's plan? No. In this age, we've deviated from God's plan, and the redemptive work of Jesus is being worked out through history so that we can ultimately and finally be connected with God's plan. And so... On one hand, we can say that we live in a fallen world where some of the best of us might suffer poverty and become ill. And we know that, that in the end, God's going to work all of this out, even the worst of things, for our good. And yet at the same time, we can say that God's heart is expressed in Eden and throughout Scripture is not for us to be sick or poor, that, but that his desire is to bless us with good health and abundant resources. I do know this. We should not glorify poverty you guys are really quiet we should not aim for poverty or sickness who gets up in the morning and says i want to become more poor today that's not in us that's not we as people created in god's image that's not what what we get up to do every day who gets up Who's going to get up tomorrow morning saying, I hope I get sick today? It's not, it's not what we're supposed to be aiming for. In other words, the fact that it exists doesn't mean that we say that's what's supposed to be. Because there are a lot of things going on in this world that are not the way they're supposed to be. And as people of faith who've experienced the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, we should always be moving more and more away from what not ought be towards what ought to be because this ultimately brings glory to God. And I would say this, just as surely as we ought not glorify poverty, we ought not be afraid to be open about our hope and expectation to have abundant resources. Notice I didn't say to get rich. I said to have abundant resources, everything we need and more to live the life God dreamed for us and to take us where God called us. Some people act as if there's a, there's a holiness to poverty. And when you study scripture, well, I would just say this. I don't see this in scripture at all. Now, I know someone may say, well, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. But notice, there's not a period after poor, is there? What did he say? In fact, say it with me, would you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, what happens and what messes so many of us up and the tapes running in our minds is Scripture not 
properly read verses that are quoted and they don't quote the whole thing and teaching that some of us got, you know, somewhere that kind of mess with our heads. And there actually are people who believe that what Jesus said are blessed are the poor. That's not what he said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have to finish the sentence. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? He didn't say blessed are the poor in their bank account. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't think the bank account has anything to do one way or another, whether there's a lot or a little. It's just not what he's talking about right there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Someone who's poor in spirit is someone who has an awareness of their poverty without God, of their need of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so you can be the person who's blessed because you're poor in spirit, whether you're financially poor or financially rich. That's not the point of that passage. All I'm saying is, let's make sure that we're saying, we're talking about the right things when we're throwing out, you know, Christian platitudes. Blessed are the, so you can be poor in spirit and rich at the same time. In fact, I would say there are a lot of people sitting in this room right now. That's exactly where you are. You are poor in spirit and you've been feeling bad because you're rich (laughs) because you thought somehow somewhere in your head, surely it's better to be poor. But in fact, I'm here to tell you, I'm going to make a very big point today. Okay. That's not the way it is. Some people say, well, Jesus was poor. Was he? You guys have no idea how to answer the questions I'm asking today, do you? And that's my fault. I'm supposed to be a good teacher. And I, I'm asking you questions that you don't, you're like, was he poor? Well, I mean, the truth is we, 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 we don't know for sure. We weren't there. We don't have the records of his bank account. We don't. But there are things that I would just caution us not to live with assumptions when the fact is we don't know. Now, here are some things we do know. We do know that he was a uh, an, an artisan, a tecton is the Greek word, which which could be translated carpenter or stonemason. And um, that uh, up until the age of 30, that's what he did. He and his dad, Joseph, evidently, from, from what we can tell, now I'm reading a little bit in to the mass of things that we do know, there, there was a, well, they said he, he, was, he, was, he was a carpenter. So, so they had a business. And uh, uh, the fact is that Nazareth at that time in history was prospering when it came to artisans because Herod and Jerusalem had a great big building project going on. And uh, there was a tremendous need for people who were doing the kind of work that Jesus was doing. And unless he and his uh, dad were totally incompetent at what they did, which my guess is the Lord who created the earth probably was a pretty good stonemason or carpenter. It's my guess. If he wasn't completely incompetent at what he did, then everything that we know about history and from all the archaeological studies and so on and so forth during that time would say that some, someone in the, in, the, in the career that Jesus was in, owning the kind of business that Jesus and, and his dad did, was probably doing pretty well. Uh, uh, I read a, a scholar named uh, Mark Hingle on this, an expert on Palestine at that time, who described Jesus as probably living an upwardly mobile middle-class existence. Now, again, we weren't there. We don't know. I'm just saying, don't assume 
that Jesus was walking around destitute because more than likely he wasn't. And uh, uh, you may say, well, doesn't uh, Scripture say, though, though, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich? And I would say, yes, in comparison to what Jesus had in heaven, <laughs> when he gave that up and showed up down here on this planet, he certainly had given up that for this, and we can then accurately say, Philippians chapter 2, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes, so that through his poverty we might become rich. But you have to look at that in a cosmic perspective, not try to proof text it to make the point that Jesus was poor. In fact, now, so then, you know, he enters his publicly ministry, public ministry at the age of 30, and, and it, it appears he didn't give a rip about making money. I mean, from everything we can tell, he just didn't care. He talked a lot about money as it concerns its stewardship on the behalf of other people, but he didn't seem to care one way or another. He wasn't about making money. And that wasn't, in fact, those who are in ministry, that's not supposed to be our goal. That's not the issue. That's not why you get into ministry for. I don't think Jesus was in ministry because he wanted to make money. He was in ministry because he had a purpose to fulfill. But don't get the idea that he was poverty stricken. First of all, there's no reason to believe that whatever he had had in Nazareth was still there and that Mary and his brothers and people were living in it. Again, we don't know for sure, but there's, and he was surrounded by a network of friends who provided places for him to live as he traveled. Um, he, uh, you know, at one point said, I don't, the Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay his head, but obviously found some place that night. And uh, he had a network of friends. He had patrons who were following him, people of wealth. We know this is clearly stated in the Gospels, who followed him and were providing for his needs and the needs of those who were following him. He had enough money going on that there was a treasurer who was handling the funds. And, and, and just by the way, just by the way, when you have the ability to turn water into wine, you are not poor. Do you get the point? When, when you can take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 people with it, you're not poor. And so I'm just trying to, I'm not trying to say things that aren't in Scripture but I am trying to combat people saying things that aren't in Scripture. And I'm trying to make the point we have assumptions that cause people to think improperly about their resources that need to be put to rest. Now, I, uh, over my study intensive, I read uh, a, a wonderful book by a scholar, a conservative theologian named Mark Devine. And he wrote a book called Shalom, Yesterday, Today, and Forever. When I say a conservative scholar, theologian, that'll mean something to some of you, and for some of you, it wouldn't. Typically, uh, conservative scholars would inveigh against any mention of the word prosperity, even though it's mentioned in Scripture lots of times. 
And uh, this guy's a gospel coalition guy, if you're familiar with that. In other words, kind of the most conservative uh, kind of theological school of thought happening in uh, 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 Protestant evangelicalism today, okay? And I was stunned uh, when I start reading this guy's book, which is, I'm, I'm studying it because it, 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 it's some scholarly foundation for the book I'm going to write. And he, he writes, and I'm going to read several paragraphs to you. Now, now I need to pause and say a couple of things. First of all, I would say, I'm probably going to be a couple minutes longer than I normally am. And I just want to warn you, if you want to leave, I get it. And, uh, but you're really going to miss it. Okay. The, but, but the other thing I'm going to say is, some of what I'm going to talk about today this isn't, by, you wouldn't take what I'm going to do today and teach a young man, this is how you preach a sermon. Because some of what I'm going to do today, it's the musings of a pastor. I've been thinking about these things. And sometimes when I'm still in the process of kind of working through some things, I'll read some, to you some of what I'm reading and say, Here, here's what is, uh, I'm reading that kind of has me thinking about this. And by the way, you can go buy it and study it yourself, right? And, um, uh, and, 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 and sometimes when I'm musing about things, sometimes the next week or two I may come back and say, you know what, I want to just balance a little bit what I said two weeks ago because I've been thinking about it a little bit more and I've gotten some feedback. And, and uh, so this is one of those sermons, right? I may come back two weeks from now and say, you know, this point maybe I might put a finer something on. Okay. Now, this is the grace that I hope's afforded somebody who's been leading the same church for almost 32 years. And I hope that, you know, if you don't trust me, those of you who come around here, then we got real problems, right? So, so hear me, hear my heart, hear, this is, so I'm reading this book and I get stunned by this conservative theologian saying, divinely intended shalom entails both physical health and material prosperity. Shalom is that word translated peace in the New Testament, or, or, or both Old and New Testament, some 500 times. It's a big concept. And shalom has to do with the way things are supposed to be, okay? Enough about that for now. Divinely intended shalom entails both physical health and material prosperity, not any glamorization of poverty or of physical suffering. I shall reject the prosperity gospel and other forms of health and wealth theology as pernicious heresies but shall argue that current evangelical critique of such heresy is weak and ineffective. The chief weakness of evangelical futility in its anti-prosperity stance is its failure to face with full seriousness the numerous passages in Holy Scriptures that teach that physical health and material prosperity are indeed to be acknowledged and enjoyed as blessings of God. We are warned against seeking to become rich. But clearly it does please our Lord, according to his wisdom and timing, to bless his children with great material prosperity when he so wills. Now the next two paragraphs I'll read I think are funny, and if you'll notice the nuance, in fact it are. He says, must the simple lifestyle preachers, which would be the people he hangs out with, give up air conditioning, mascara, fancy fountain pens, and especially those quintessential badge of affluence, dental insurance plans. So he's going to make the point. These conservative pastors, and I in many ways would consider myself a conservative pastor, so I'm here, here we are. These conservative pastors, he says, who are in their pulpits in rich America preaching against prosperity are so prosperous, it's ridiculous. That's the point he's making. And he's saying, how do you preach against prosperity when you're standing in a you know, $15 million building? and have dental insurance. That's his point. And then he says, ought Pope Francis, who has taken a vow of poverty, 
Ought Pope Francis's little dashing fiat be surrendered? And you say, it's so sweet, Pope Francis is driving a fiat. Well, if you've been to Abbatifi Kwahu, where we have a pretty active ministry, Pope Francis's fiat would be like, you know, wh whoever drove their Maserati here to church today, right? It's a matter of perspective. So Pope Francis is, you know, all, anyway, ought, I, I kind of like the guy, but, I'm, but the point here is, ought, I'm going to stop commenting. Ought Pope Francis's dashing fiat be surrendered? Should Francis refuse costly preventative medical care? costly nutritional and vitamin supplements and exorbitantly expensive surgery needed to save his life? For Should he renounce for himself at least all the truly luxurious benefits of modern health care, unimaginable apart from the unprecedented wealth created by the capitalism he so reflexly, reflexively indicts? I think that he should. Not because he names the name of Christ, but because he has taken the vow of poverty. Even better would be to renounce the vow and enjoy the benefits with a clear conscience. Some of us, in our own way of thinking about life, need to renounce our vow of poverty, by the way, and learn to enjoy the blessings of God with a clear conscience. Anyway, the common rhetoric against the prosperity gospel, though technically correct, tends to fall flat. It fails to hear the witness of the whole of Scripture, and for that reason, fails to phase Bible-thumping purveyors of the prosperity gospel or those who follow them. And it falls flat for keen assessors because the decriers themselves are rich. One problem is that the exaggerated selective and blind spot nurtured anti-money and anti-wealth talk issues disproportionately from rich Christians who do not know they are rich at a time in history during which the Lord has seen fit to make more Christians rich than ever before. Never has the need for guidance on how to be rich been more important. See, the fact is, if we're honest with ourselves, that we are incredibly blessed people and for most of us, that means that we have some measure of abundant resources. We should not feel guilty for having bountiful resources. We should rather ask how we can best enjoy and use our resources for God's glory. We are strongly warned in Scripture about loving money. Scripture says, the love of money is the root of evil. Not money, the love of money. We're strongly warned in Scripture about loving money and hoarding money and misusing money. At the same time, though, wealth is often mentioned as a sign, not the sign, but a sign of God's blessing. The proper use of money is celebrated in Scripture in many ways. A wonderful balance on this subject is Paul's writing to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, where he's teaching Timothy how to teach the people who have means in his congregation to think and to handle their money. Here's what Paul said. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what are the people who have money in, 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 in Timothy's congregation supposed to do? Don't put their hope in it. Don't be arrogant about it. Be grateful. Put their hope in God and enjoy the things that God has richly provided. And then he goes on, command them to do good, 
to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So does he say, if there's somebody who's wealthy in your congregation, Timothy, you should tell them to give it all up or to be humble and grateful and enjoy the good things God's given them, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share what they have. And when they do that, when they think properly about the money that they have, then they transfer that money from just being riches into something more than that, true riches. But that doesn't mean that they no longer have money in their bank account. It just means that they're about, that's not what they're about. They're about God and who he's called them to be and what he's called them to do and how they can be used by him. So with this in mind, I finally get to my sermon. Three thoughts on stewarding. Thank you. Three thoughts on stewarding abundance. Here's first. God loves the haves and the have-nots. God loves the haves and the have-nots. So first of all, let's talk about the have-nots. God hears the cry of the have-nots and moves them toward abundance. Okay, one other thing. I know some of your eyes are going to cross when I do this, but I want to read one other thing from another scholar that I read during my study intensive, okay? This is a guy named, and you notice, as always, I always tell you my sources. I always tell you where I got something from. I want you to be able to go study it and research it and check it out and check me out and all that stuff, okay? So this is a scholar named Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is considered, uh, I would say by most, to be the leading scholar on the Old Testament probably over the last century, okay? And um, uh, he, is, he is, I can't tell you how highly regarded he is. And typically, Brueggemann's reading of the Old Testament leads him to kind of a, an emphasis on things like social justice, he tends, when he reads the Old Testament, to see what he calls the have-nots and to hear their cry. And uh, he, is, uh, he is someone who's, who's uh, a, 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 a thinker about things like liberation theology. So it's particularly interesting for him to talk not just about the have-nots, but the haves. And I hear this. It's fascinating. Again, I'm sorry. I know it's a little boring when I'm reading, but I, I don't really know how else to get at this except say, here, here's, here's part of what I read. Trust me, it's just part of it. He says, let me report on the Moses-Joshua-Samuel prophetic tradition. This is the one we know best and the one most of us discern as normative for the Bible. This literature emerged from a situation of have-nots working with the question of survival. The people who shaped this literature were interested in the question of survival, either actual physical, historical survival, or at least the survival of faith and meaning. So that part of the New Testament written about uh, the people of God in slavery for 400 years, or that part of the Old Testament written around the Jews who were in exile, people who didn't have, okay? Uh, part uh, People who live in the midst of precariousness shape their vocabulary and their faith, their perceptions and their liturgy in a distinctive way. One of the most important ways the Israelites expressed their faith was around the theme of cry out, hear, and deliver. Their form of faith was to cry out. 
This theology is one of needy, helpless folk who sometimes cry to Yahweh and are rescued, but who sometimes do not cry to Yahweh and suffer for it. Their notion of themselves is that of a dependent people crying out for a vision of survival and salvation. Now, what happens when these have-nots cry out to Yahweh and he helps them? When he helps them, he moves them from being have-nots to being haves. Which then messes the whole thing up because have-nots a lot of times have trouble being haves because their heads are still stuck in have-notism. And now they feel bad that they feel good. Are you with me at all? You understand? So here's an example. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I said, I'm glad that you don't have and that you're suffering. Stay there and suffer. Ha, ha, ha. Wait a minute. That's not what it says. It actually says, I heard the cry of my people in Egypt, so I have come down to rescue them from the land, from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see? God says, I see you in your have not situation. I hear your cry, I hear your prayer. I'm gonna rescue you, and you know what I'm gonna do? I'm going to take you into a spacious land. I'm going to take you into a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Why? Because that's the heart of God. What looks like Eden? Being enslaved in Egypt or being in a land flowing? I'm sorry, what looks like Eden? Being enslaved in Egypt or being in a land filled with milk and honey? And then Brueggemann writes about the haves. He, and I'm going to offer this point, that God sees the, sees the haves then, which even have-nots end up becoming, and calls them to manage their resources and enjoy their resources. My last reading from anybody else today, here's Brueggemann on Shalom for the haves. He writes, there is a second distinct alternative in the Old Testament traditions that has little sense of precariousness and is not much worried about survival. These traditions cluster around Noah, Abraham, David. In broad sweeping terms, I propose that these traditions emerge and reflect a situation of haves whose life is not precarious and who are concerned with questions of proper management and joyous celebration. Can you all acknowledge that the way we think every day, those of us living here, all of us in this room, at whatever level we're haves, it's totally different than somebody waking up in a village in Africa, and I've been places like this, and many of you have been as well, who's getting up in the morning and having to go stand in line at the river to get their water on a bucket and take it back home, right? Their situation is one of precariousness. It's one of survival. It's one of where am I going to find food today? There's, there's a different narrative that's going through their minds. Here we are trying to figure out exactly what restaurant to eat our lunch in today. It's a totally different set of issues, both of which are represented in Scripture. 
So, so those of us whose life is not precarious and who are concerned with questions of proper management, joy, celebration, it is the well-off who can reflect on proper management, who are aware that blessings have been given to them that must be wisely cared for and properly maintained for the generations to come. It is the well-off who can be reflective enough to care intentionally about the joyous celebration of life. People who are well-off have very different perceptions of life and a different theological agenda from those who must worry about survival. Both are in the Bible. And while church theology has taken the Bible theology of survival seriously, it has been less perceptive about the Bible's theology of management and celebration. Thus, the theology of blessing for the well-offs is very different from a theology of salvation for the precarious have-nots. I want to affirm simply that out of a socioeconomic setting of disadvantage comes the stuff of the radical gospel of liberation, and lots of us are committed to it, Brueggemann says, but it is important for us to observe that this other theology of proper management and joyous celebration is also biblical. Moreover, it is likely in our cultural setting that this theology is more appropriate to lots of folks who are increasingly well-off. And then finally, I would say, of course, I am being simplistic by suggesting only the two poles we move in and out of have and have not polarity. So you may have in one area of your life and not have, you may have money, not have the relationship you need, right? So we're all sorting through that, but this is a fascinating perspective. Here's scripture that kind of indicates what it looks like for the haves. You know, when Solomon wrote Proverbs, he's not writing Proverbs from the, from a, he's the richest man in the world. How did he become the richest man in the world? He was blessed by God. That's how. So his perspective Anyway, 1 Kings 4.20, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand in the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. Now look, guys, some of you are saying this sermon is obviously for somebody else. Somebody in the room's rich. I'm not. No. By any historical and global standard, all of us in this room are rich. I know we're not in comparison to each other, that there are gradations of wealth. I know that. I acknowledge that. If you're, you know, living off your social security check and somebody else here is making a million dollars a year, I understand there's a difference. But I want us to think bigger, okay? Because the poorest of us is incredibly blessed. The poorest of us, someone, you know, uh, on, on Medicaid is getting medical care that, that most of the world could never even imagine of receiving. The, 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 the statistics are... That if you earn an income, this is a statistic from a couple years ago, so it might need to be updated, but Richard Stearns in his book Unfinished said, if you earn an income of $40,000, you earn more than 99% of people in the world. An income of just $13,000 places you in the top 10%. So, so. Boy, do I ever need to talk faster. We're going to be here all day. Philippians 4, Paul said, I rejoice greatly that at last you renewed your concern for me. So, so he's saying, so, so Paul, you know, is doing ministry work and he needed an offering from, from the Philippians in order to meet his financial needs and to keep going where God called him to go. So he's received this offering and he's saying thank you. And he says, I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. Guys, please hear this. Please hear this. I want us to have a huge paradigm shift. Many of us know how to be in need, but we don't know how to be in plenty. I know how to be in need. I can tell you stories that would make your hair fall out. 
of the early days of this ministry and showing up to a small handful of people. The, the total income of the, of the church was you know, $70,000 the first year I came. All the expenses of the church were paid out of that, including my salary. So guess what? I wasn't making very much money, right? And I could tell stories, but somehow or another, it's true that we prospered even then, that we had what we needed to get to where we were going, and here we are now. But I'll tell you that sometimes my mind is stuck in an I'm in need place instead of acknowledging that I'm in a season in my life now by God's grace that could be described as plenty. I even feel odd kind of saying that. I was kind of taught to be a poor mouth preacher. I could care less. I mean, I care about money, but I don't really care about money that much. That's not what I, that's not my thing. I, if I wanted money, I would have gone into business and I would have, I care about ministry. But somehow or another, and this isn't about me, but just to make the point, somehow or another, as I've cared about doing what God's called me to do, somehow or another, abundant resources have come and it's the blessing of God and the kindness of people and trying to practice good stewardship and whatever. Thank God. My point is, I, I, I have to reorganize my mind to think in terms of a person who has plenty. The question is, how do we live when we have plenty, which speaks of most of us? We have to learn how to enjoy the blessings of God, which I'm going to pick up in a couple of weeks. Because he gets pleasure out of our enjoying them, not feeling guilty about them. And we have to learn how to manage our resources in a way where God can use them to carry out his purposes in the world. Let me make my last two points very quickly. First of all, I just happen to know, I'm sorry guys, I get distracted. I see everything going in the room. I happen to see Pastor Ryan, I see you writing with a beautiful pen. I'm sorry, just real quick, I'm just curious what is... You're right. You're sitting. You're sit, you're a pastor, and you're sitting over there writing with a Mont Blanc pen. <laughs> this thing costs hundreds of dollars. I love. I'm a pen guy. I love. I love Mont Blanc pens. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Now, wait, wait, wait. Actually, you know what? <clears throat> Whose pen is this? It's your pen. It's my pen. <laughs> and before the service, I gave it to you and said, enjoy writing, taking notes on my sermon, or doodling, whatever it is you're doing over there, with this Mont Blanc pen. Now, I'd like now for you to have it for the rest of the service, and please give it back to me when we're finished. All right. I do that to make a very simple point. First of all, I'm preaching so long, I've got to entertain you a little bit. Here are a couple points from that. The first one is, I feel like, now that you know I own that Mont Blanc, I feel like I need to explain to you that somebody gave that to me as a gift. I'm being very frank with you. Why do I feel like I need to explain that to you? Because I feel guilty that I have something, a stupid pen that costs hundreds of dollars. But I feel like saying, I'm sorry, forgive me that I have that pen and enjoy that pen. Somebody gave it to me, I didn't pay for it. In fact, I have two Montblancs. Somebody gave me that 
40 years ago, I was preaching in Dallas, Texas. Somebody walks up and hands me a box with a mock block pen. I've treasured, enjoyed it, written hundreds of sermons with it, written books with it. And then a couple years ago, a guy in our church walked up to me in the lobby. I don't know how he knew. I I never said anything about mock blocks. I'm embarrassed I own a mock block. And he hands me a box, and in it's a beautiful new mock block. So, 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 so my point is, first of all, what, what, so what if, in fact, I had paid for that? What if within my budget, and while being a good steward, I decided that I'd really like to have a Mont Blanc, and I went out and I spent $300 or whatever that cost for a Mont Blanc pen, and I stood here and said, look at this Mont Blanc pen. Should I feel bad about that? But you understand my inclination is to feel bad about it, right? And I'm saying we need to get over that. We need to get over that. Because part of what God wants us to do with the resources he's blessed us with is to enjoy them. And I'm going to, again, I tend to open my sermon two weeks from now if anybody's still a part of TLCC by then. (laughs) By making the point that we're supposed to enjoy the things God's given us. And then the second thing we're supposed to do now is practice stewardship. Stewardship is me saying, now, because I own the pen, when I first put that in my pocket, you thought, I was trying to be funny, but you also thought, he's taking Ryan's pin, which you know I wouldn't do. But if you thought I was taking Ryan's pin, you'd feel bad at me, wouldn't you? And you should. But I wasn't taking Ryan's pin. I was taking my pin. (laughs) And so God gives us resources to enjoy, but he also says, when I want it, when I want it back, I want you to give it to me because it's not yours, it's mine. And so, so I'll sum up these last couple points really quickly. We must learn to enjoy God's good gifts in the concept of stewardship. Stewardship is about ownership. So, so now, what are we going to do? How do we learn to live in plenty? Well, we learn to live in plenty... By acknowledging that God is the owner of all this plenty that we have. And this is, this is what stewardship about, is about. Stewardship is about ownership. Or in light of the teachings of the recent weeks, it's about lordship. A steward in a biblical context understands that God is the owner of all that is, all that we are, and that we are stewards of God's property. We are to manage what's his. We are to invest it and make more of it. And we're to offer it back to him for him to use as he pleases whenever and however he asks for it. Paul says to Timothy, here's what you're supposed to to tell the people in, who are rich in this present world. Tell them to have a proper attitude about what they have and to be rich toward God. So, you know, Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is what a steward recognizes, that nothing we have is ours, including our resources. Not if we're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our time is his, our talent is his, our bodies are his, our families are his, our jobs are his, our resources are his. A steward recognizes this. This is the most important thing, I think, for us to live properly with abundant resources. It's not to feel guilty about it, it's to be grateful for it, 
to remember that he is Lord of it and that he can ask for it and use it for the things he wants to use it for. And when we do this, then we discover that our money becomes something much more powerful than money. It becomes what Jesus called in Luke 16, true riches. It's, 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 you know, money's just money. But when money is used to accomplish eternal purposes, there's a magic that happens. And this is the back and forth between God who so generously blesses us and those of us who have so much. One other thing about this, and I'm going to introduce the subject, and again, I'll pick this up in a couple of weeks if anybody comes back. This is part of the beauty of tithing. And this is something that I think far too many people don't understand. Simply put, there's a lot that can be said about tithing, and there's a discussion I'll do in a couple weeks about, you know, there are some people who, there are, there are people who don't think that tithing is a New Testament principle, and so on. We'll get into some of that stuff in a couple weeks, okay? But, but, the, as I understand tithing, and as it's been understood for some 2,000 years in, in Christian thought, the tithe is, a, is, an, is about stewardship. The tithe is an acknowledgement of God's ownership. The tithe, Deuteronomy 14.23 in the Living Bible says, the purpose of the tithe is to always show that you're putting God first in your life. When you return to God the tithe, and by the way, we don't give God the tithe, we return it. Leviticus tells us that the tithe is holy to the Lord, meaning the tithe is his. It's all his, but the tithe is to, is to be fully devoted. That's what to be holy means. The tithe is something we don't touch, we don't handle, we don't mess with. We get it, we return it. And when we tithe, when we return the 10%, we're saying that we acknowledge God's ownership over it all. That's what we're saying. And you say, well, why did God design it like that? Well, I don't know why God did, but he did. And this is the teaching of Scripture, and this is what many of us, if not most of us in this room, practice, and it should give us such joy that, that one way that we handle plenty is that we offer God the part of it that he asked for, and he asked for the tithe, the first fruits, always to be the very first thing that we do as it concerns our financial life. And, and, and so, so when we get, that's part of how we learn to have a lot of resources is we're always saying, I know it's not mine, God. You asked for the first 10%. Here it is. And then he says, you can do with the 90% what you want, unless I ask you for some of that. And if he asks us for some of that, what are we supposed to do? Well, who did it come from? Whose is it? It's his. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous question. And then what happens when we participate with God like this? Another thing he says is you're not going to end up with less. You're going to end up with more. Now, that's not why we do it. We don't give so we get back. If we're doing that, our motive is wrong. We give so we can participate in the purposes of God. And somehow or another, then he wants us to have more so we can keep this dance going with him about how his kingdom work is getting done on the earth. And there's a lot more to be said about it. But that's a little bit of an introduction to the thinking around that. You know, it's like Jesus who said, Matthew 23, 23, you should tithe. You should tithe, but do it with a heart that's right and that understands the even bigger issues of what's going on in the world as it concerns righteousness and justice and so on and so forth. So you should do it, but you're doing it from your heart, recognizing God as the owner and the Lord of all. And my third and final point, and you can be glad the band is coming now, is that the heart of God is to move the have-nots to the haves and those of us with abundant resources have the privilege in helping him with this. Guys, when we, those of us who have, are sharing it, 
in whatever ways we're called to share it, including tithing. Part of what we do is we now help God move people from the have-nots to the have. Those who don't have the gospel, hear the gospel. Kids who aren't being trained in the values of, of, of Scripture have an opportunity to be trained in the values of Scripture. The poor folks living uh, uh, homeless at the, at the Newark YMCA 260-bed uh, uh, homeless facility that we've partnered with for years and years and years and sown so much money and so, much, so many volunteers. We're helping those have-nots become haves, right? We're, we're not just going in and saying, hey, this is cool that you don't have. We're, you know, there's a thrift shop set up by all means in our lobby out there as we're trying to help people be able to dress properly, get jobs. That's part of what's happening is we start participating as we're, if those of us who have are sharing what we have, now we're helping move the have-nots to a place called have-dom. And, 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 and so part of what I want, I'm trying very intentionally, let me tell you what my plan is, my hope is, I'm hoping over these next four weeks for us to get so excited about how blessed we are and what we have to share and how we can be involved in what God's doing, that, that when, the, when, when, when discussions of tithing and generosity come up around TLCC, we're sitting on the edges of our seat, excited, so excited because we understand the blessing that's come to us and the blessing that we have of being a part of what God's doing in the world now.